The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey, Rockheads, stop uploading that old Caesars 24-7 show to YouTube and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan here to announce show number 256 with Nick Landry, recorded live Tuesday, July 10, 2007. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net. Training developers to work smarter by bringing world-class .NET and SharePoint training on-site for your development team. Online at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows Forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Code Magazine the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who still regrets dragging Nick Landry to Caesar's Palace with Rory and Jeff to pick up chicks, Carl Franklin. Thank you very much, and welcome back to .NET Rocks. It's our Thursday show. Hi, Richard. Hey, gotta love a Thursday show. It's almost the weekend. Again. And this is my weekend for my big birthday party. Yep. And uh, I got to tell you about last Saturday, we had a party here at the studio. It, oh, yes. Your studio is just about finished. Well, it's almost finished, but it's really attracting a lot of local attention. I've already had, you know, I'm walking down the street and somebody I don't even know says, hey, you're the guy with the studio, right? <laughs> Seriously, like all the musicians are buzzing about it because there's nothing like this around this town. Are you actually going to rent the space out? Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna do music. Nice. Yeah, you know, not me all the time, but there's a lot of talented engineers and stuff here. So I'm sort of uh, renting it to them to rent the studio and take a small cut. You know, I just want to get use out of it. So, but it was a lot of fun, and we were we were cooking, playing some great music, had a lot of great food, and watched the fireworks out the big windows. No, it was a lot of fun. Cool. So, uh, again, if you want to see the studio renovation, that's at uh, photos.pwop.com. You can sort of see the story in pictures. Uh, You've been keeping up on the photos as the thing has progressed. Yeah. And we're past the toxic fumes rendering you unconscious phase. Oh, yes. (laughs) That's long past. So, uh, when it's all done, I'll put a whole storyboard together and show people without all the boring pictures. I'll put together something actually interesting on my blog. Cool. All right. So, it's time for Better Know Framework. Yep. There it is. Not going to get past that music, man. Sorry. Okay. 
I'm apologizing. I'm just saying. Today is uh, today's class is system.web.mail. Nice. Whether you knew it or not, you can actually send email from the .NET framework, even in a Windows app, as long as you have a reference to system.web DLL. That assembly has the SMTP mail implementation, which allows you to compose a mail message with credentials and all of that and send it out. So there you go. Uh, also, just make sure that all your settings are correct because, you know, email servers are very picky. You know, they have lots of security on them and things like that. Um, so if it doesn't work, there's probably a really good reason you want to call your mail administrator right away. But you don't have to have a separate SMTP service running somewhere to use this class. Yeah, that's right. That's right. It will send the mail directly itself. Oh, okay. Well, an SMTP service is something that accepts SMTP connections for you sending mail. So, yes, you do have to connect to a mail server, but to send the mail, you don't need to have any kind of service. Right. That's right. Well, because I've, I've definitely played with libraries, say, on servers where you had to have the SMTP service running to make just that to work. Just to send it, yeah. Yeah, just to send it out. But obviously, wherever you're sending it to, there better be a server to receive it. That's right. So there it is. Richard, you got an email? I do indeed, and you're going to like this one. It's actually, I got it a while ago, and I've been saving it for a special occasion. <laughs> it says, hi, Carl and Richard. You really know how to deliver. I was so buzzed when you read out my previous email and gave me everything I asked for that I made all my teammates listen to the podcast. The twice-weekly format has clearly given you more room to branch out and to very good effect, I might add. Of particular interest to me have been a few of the recent shows that looked at what it means to be a developer. Though I'm not going to complain about the technology-specific shows, having the mix is great. Now, down to the key question. What are you planning for show 256? After all the hoopla surrounding the decibel bicentennial, show 200, I was expecting something truly grand in the lead-up to the hexadecimal centennial, show 0x100 or 256, but so far, nothing. Well, Come on, are you guys real geeks or just pretending? No, we're pretty much just pretending. <laughs> and, of course... Bevan, uh, this is an email from Bevan Arps, and we did read one of Bevan's emails some time ago where we said, yeah, we're going to do all the shows you've asked for, and then started doing them. And so I just had to save this email up as we got to show 256. I figured I'd just let you know, yeah, it's just a show. It's a good show, uh, yeah. but it's still just a show. Richard, we were talking about this before we started recording. It's like show 100 was momentous because we I never thought we'd get to 100 shows. Yeah, it's hard to imagine actually doing 100 shows. But show 200 came on really fast. It did. It came on fast because, you know, when we were doing the first 100, we were going a couple weeks sometimes without doing a show. and So 200 came on fast, and it was just like an excuse to have a party. And that wasn't very long ago. Now that we're doing two shows a week, we really accelerated. Yeah, so we'll it's be like, through 300 shows this year for sure. Yeah, I guess I guess we'll probably stop, you know, having special shows on those events because well, you know, we should save up for like 500. When we get to 500 shows, that'll be fun. That's only a couple of years away. That'll be a nice look back. I think oh, that's a long look back. 500 shows. Yeah. Oh well, we'll get there. All right. What else are we going to do, Richard? I don't know. This is our this is the gig. That's it. <laughs>
All right. Well, in the other news, uh, Greg Brill is still down there in New York looking for talented .NET developers to come and spend a year in New York, the New York City tour. And you know you want to check it out at shrinkster.com slash kh6. Come on. Live in Manhattan rent-free for a year. Have an work, adventure. Work with some really creative people. Be a two-hour train ride away from Pop Studios. Come on. In fact, you would get an opportunity to work with our guest today. That's right. Yeah. So... And little does he know that this is show number 256. I didn't tell him, did you? No, but I'm sure he'll be happy about it. <laughs> he's he's geekier than us in that yeah, way. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. All right, well, let's just introduce Nick. Nick Landry is our old friend from the earliest days of .NET Rocks. He's the principal architect for Infusion Development in New York City, whom you hear about just about every show because they're sucking up people, as we just heard. <laughs> uh, he's a Microsoft MVP on device application development. He speaks all over the world, TechEd, MEDC, Dev Connections, DevTeach. He's a published author for Code Magazine. He's the vice president of the International Association of Software Architects in New York, member of the MSDN Canada Speakers Bureau, and in general, just an overall good guy. Hi, Nick Landry. How are you? I'm doing pretty good, guys. How are you? Excellent. Well, I don't think we've talked on the show since show 100. Actually, no. We had another show, 160-something, I think, early 2006. We did uh, an update on uh, mobility. Oh, that's right. Yeah, Mobility Plus. Yeah. So this is my, my my third official appearance, if you don't count the show 100, where I was pretty much just crashing your party since I was visiting you. And it was a party. <laughs> it was a party. It was pretty cool. So this is another party of sorts, because this is show 100 Hex, 256. Right. Yeah, I feel very special now. And some of our listeners think that this is a more important show than show 100 decimal, actually. Yeah, definitely. And, of course, if nobody gets any of these jokes, it means they don't deserve to listen to the show. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> very nice. Very nice. Uh, Nick, you, I mean, you're all over the place technology-wise. Obviously, a big mobility guy. But and you sent me a list a while ago about uh, different things we could talk about. But the one that jumped out to me, the one we've never done anything on before, is this whole Microsoft Robotics Studio. Yeah. Now, this is a relatively recent thing from Microsoft, isn't it? Pretty much, yeah. Microsoft released the first beta in 2006 and released version 1 of the Robotics Studio in December. So what is it? Let's start with what this is. Sounds like brings up uh, Lego Mindstorms to me, but what is it really? Well, in a sense, Lego Mindstorms can fit in there. Um, okay, first of all, you have let's backtrack a little. You have to understand what it means to be a robotics developer. And this is something where you said, like, I'm all over the place. I do touch a bunch of technologies like uh, architecture, mobility, high-performance computing, robotics, even game development with XNA. But the thing with robotics is it's actually part of my background because... I was actually an entrepreneur from 98 to 2000, where I co-founded and ran a, a visual effects company called Camera Emotion, which is still around, by the way. And um, in that company, we were specializing in something called motion control. I don't know if you guys ever heard of motion control before. Sure. Sure. Okay, so motion control, for those who are not aware, because it's, not, it's definitely not an IT term, um, it's essentially about managing the, the motion of any kind of motion that will be, will be automated. So typically, it's going to be using a robot. Of course, robot is a very loose term. For example, in a movie industry where I operated, um, it's essentially where we had uh, dollies and uh, like cranes and uh, mechanical arms that were 
computer-driven with motors and everything. And that allowed you to essentially move the camera around. Everything was centric around the camera. Because normally, whenever you do a shot with a cameraman, um, you can get a nice like human feel to the shot and all. But let's say that you want to shoot um, the same shot multiple times in front of a blue screen. You've probably seen this, right, in making ofs and behind the scenes on DVDs, where do you do blue screen or green screen work, right? Right. Okay, so... What you'll probably notice is in most of these times, the camera is always going to be fixed. The camera is going to be sitting on a tripod because if I move during my shot, whenever I'm going to shoot again, for example, if I want to three copies of Carl on screen, if you move the camera the first time I shoot Carl, the second time I shoot you at a different position, I would have to do the same motion exactly the same way. Right. And, and you need to be like, you were talking about sub-millimeter precision and sub-millisecond precision. So no human can duplicate the same movement twice because once you're going to put all these shots together and you know, overlap them, um, the slightest offset is going to shift the image and reveal the illusion. So motion control was essentially about very often doing multiple shots over and over for multi-layer compositing. And um, to do this, there's two ways we could do it. Either we would pre-program a motion in advance. So we would have a computer software and we would input motion path, you know, points along a path, and then the camera would follow that curve and then we can play it over and over. Or another thing we could do is if you want a more natural feeling, we could actually record motion. Just like, you know, we're recording audio right now. You can also record video as we know, but you can also record motion. Right. Where in that case, you have sensors, you know, encoders on your equipment and all of them have been calibrated to a zero position. Just like when you measure something, you always measure from a point to another. Sure. It's like so, calibrating a scale before you weigh something. Exactly. You calibrate it to zero so that whenever you weigh yourself, you have to weight from zero, not from 10 or minus 10. Right. So same thing with motion. You decide in space what is your zero position. And then after that, whenever you move the equipment, your encoders send you pulses. And depending on the resolution of your encoders, you can take this data. And I actually designed systems for camera emotion entirely built with Microsoft technologies. Uh, the first one was actually running on Windows 98 beta with VB5 running real time. And then later upgraded to NT4 workstation. And I was dumping all my data in a SQL 7 database. So essentially using my IT developer techniques to record motion. Hmm. But the robotics part where I had to actually interface with a board and read information from it and also playback, uh, you know, motion and send curves to, to my board. Everything had to be done, I mean, the hard way. The board came with a low-level API with DLLs. And after that, I had to pretty much manage everything on my own. This was really just serial communication between the device and you? It was kind of serial. Well, we had a, an actual board, a hardware board that, that went in the PC and the, P, and the board had eight different ports. Oh, okay. Right. But of course, so the board itself is not serial, but the my inter, my software that, that was talking to the board, of course, I could, if I wanted to interface with multiple ports, I had to write a multi-threaded application. Right. And Carl, you're a VB guy, of course. You've, you've done multi-threading in VB5, right? Sure. 
it's fun. <laughs> yeah, it's to say the forget. least. It yeah, can be fun it. and it can be absolutely horrible. Yeah, because yeah. you you had to rely on hacks and you had to you to, to rely on APIs that were undocumented. Oh, VB five. Oh, good lord, no. Yeah, yeah, no. I'm not talking about VB.net. Oh god, VB.net. It works great, of course. Yeah, but VB, I'm talking about VB five. You didn't even you didn't even try it. That's how bad it was. Well, I did, and it was not fun. And and of course, the moment your your program would crash. Uh, you would go back to the development environment and it was ticking time bomb because yeah. you would just wait there and you knew that sooner or later because all these threads you didn't clean up would just crash the whole IDE. Yep. So basically, multi-threading was not really something that I could consider, especially since I had to churn out these programs very fast because we had guys that were on a movie set using the software and coming back in the evening and saying, okay, I need this new feature and this new feature because you know we're, we're running into this situation. So I was like churning out features on demand. Right and uh, multi-threading and features on demand don't really work together. So essentially, I had to deal with a very complex situation, which was essentially concurrency. You're talking about motion control for cameras, but these are really stepper motors that can be used for for anything, right? Is this what we're talking about? Stepper motors, servo or servo motors, it could be anything. I mean, uh, robots today are used for what? I mean, you can have your little iRobot vacuum cleaner that vacuums your floor. Uh, you have like the the Mars rover explorer is also a form of robot. Right. Well, industrial robots are where the where the you know the business application is. Um, how how big of a robot can can one uh, tackle with with this stuff? Anything. That's the thing. It, it's completely independent of the size of the robot or the interface or anything. Because I'm trying to give you a bit of a picture as to why did Microsoft jump into robotics. Yeah. So first of all, I, I give you a bit of my background in robotics on how I came to play with it, of course. But why did Microsoft go into it? Well, actually, if you've read in uh, Scientific American, there was a, a good essay by Bill Gates in January, where he kind of explains the reasoning behind this. And in a nutshell, it's because back in the 70s, when, when Gates and Paul Allen actually decided to, you know, jump into the world of computers and introduce BASIC, it's because Computers were pretty much um, not accessible to everyone. You needed to have a common language, a common platform, a, uh, more standards, essentially, to have the, that business pick up. And that was back when they were using the line, a computer on every desk or a computer in yeah. every home. Exactly. And, and Bill Gates' essay is pretty much the same thing, where they see the future as a robot in every home. And we're pretty much at the same stage today as they were with the computer field in the 70s, but now it's robotics. But of course, we have the advantage today that we have powerful computers, we have commodity chips, commodity memory. Uh, you can buy a gigahertz for a few cents, uh, the same thing for magnet of memory. So you, you don't have that, that hurdle anymore. And robotics, of course, you have to deal with things like uh, recognition, uh, image recognition, computer vision, even voice recognition, sensor input, and Computers have this. Computers have the power to actually allow us to work with advanced scenarios like computer vision, for example. So that's why Microsoft is now finally deciding to, to tackle this because they've explored a lot with hobbyists, with academics, and every time they would go to a science fair or to a computer, uh, a computer science department, and they would ask to see what kind of projects are kids doing these days. Almost always, one team was working on something related to robotics. Robotics is always something that's been fascinating us. I mean, from, from Data and Star Trek or C-3PO or R2-D2 in Star Wars or, or the, 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 I mean, the, I, the iRobots, you know, from Asimov's uh, so, so is this really about 
toys? Is this really about playing with robots like for for home uh, improvement or something? Or are we talking about industrial bots here too? It's, it's about anything. Just like computers were not uh, meant to be just for toys, for playing games, or for home, for word processing. Computers were meant for anything, from industrial to commercial to business to academics to, to home use, games, anything. Robotics is the same thing. I know robotics is, is covers the wide spectrum, but specifically about this Microsoft Robotics Studio, will we be able to uh, talk to industrial robots as well as the stuff that we, you know, Asimo walking around our house going, would you like a cup of coffee? Yeah, okay, so let me... Let me explain, first of all, the, the few types of robots and how you could control them. You have the, 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 the main model that people think about, of course, is the autonomous robot, like R2-D2 or Data, you know, something that walks around on its own, views the, the, the environment around them, and can react to that environment. So while you could create robots like this with Robotic Studio, it would have to be, for example, a, a PC-based robot, like a robot that would have a PC built into it. Okay. And and there are a couple of robots running around like that these days. Of course, no, that's the thing. Especially the industrial ones that are very big, they're 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 attached to assembly lines and everything. Usually, each robot has its own computer. And when you say attached to it, if the robot doesn't move around, if it's fixed on a floor and it's just a big arm on an assembly line, and there's a computer attached to it, whether that computer is right next to it or in a server room, in the end, it's pretty much the same thing. So you can have remote execution, which is the main model for the robots that you control with Robotic Studio. So you have a computer, like your laptop, for example, or your desktop. And on your computer, you have your robotics application that is running. And then that robotics application will communicate with the robot externally, either by being physically tethered to the robot over like a serial link or any kind of connection you can have, or it could be over Bluetooth, for example. So if you have a robot that's Bluetooth enabled and you can get one for very cheap, you mentioned the Lego Mindstorms, well, that's a kit, the Lego Mindstorms Next that came out, NXT, that came out last year. Right. You can buy for 200 250 bucks, and you get a nice robot with three servo motors with a bunch of sensors for vision, sonar, um, light detection, sound detection, and it's Bluetooth enabled. Yeah. So you can actually communicate with that robot over wireless. So the brain is in your computer. Because the NXT is kind of weak, you know, it's more powerful than the last generation, but we're talking about an ARM7 processor, uh, it's, it's only running at uh, oh, the exact specs I could give you. That's okay. But it doesn't have advanced features the way we're used to them on a computer with gigahertz of power. So, for example, if, if you look at the NXT, it's, it's not super powerful. It's a 32-bit ARM7 microcontroller, it's got 256Ks of RAM only. So there's only so much you can do with 256K of RAM, especially if you want to do things like artificial intelligence and computer vision. It's something you have to leave sometimes on your computer. Yep. And that's where you put everything. So the robot itself, the software that runs on a robot, only has two main purposes. One of the purposes is to grab the sensor input. So whether uh, you bumped into something, what's, what it sees around, what objects, what motion, sounds it can hear, light intensity. It grabs all the sensor input and then can send it to the computer. And then the computer, depending on the sensor input it receives, it can actually take decisions and send motor information back to the robot that says, go there, move like this, do that motion. So the robot itself only sends sensor info and receives motor, in motor information. And everything else is on the computer. So are you saying it's really up to you then to process that 
that information because this is what I when I think of when I think of robotics programming, I think I'm going to get a bunch of inputs. I'm I, obviously you have the control aspect. I can make it move. I can make it bend and. You know, if, if there was an artificial hand, I could have fine motor control over how, how that worked. But getting input, I mean, processing what you, what, what a robot sees through its eyes, digital signal processing, that's the hard stuff. You know, the, it, I don't know as if, uh, uh, any robotic studio is gonna, is gonna help me do that hard stuff there, well, is it? Well, it's, well, it's not going to give you computer vision or anything like that. That's the part that you actually have to program for yourself. Of course. What the robotic studio will give you, though, is the ability to create an orchestrator. Because if you have all these real-time ports and you have to send real-time motor info, again, we come back to the problem of concurrency, coordination and concurrency. Uh, well, what's an orchestrator? Well, that's the application that you're writing. It's an orchestrator between the inputs you receive from the sensors and the outputs you're sending to the motor. You're orchestrating the uh, the whole robotics application. Okay. Because as I said, the orchestrator is the piece you write, and that's what the robotics studio allows you to do. Is it, it helps you to build an orchestrator, and that orchestrator will receive real-time inputs and provide real-time real-time outputs. Got it. And it might it might sound trivial, but anyone who's ever had to deal with real-time concurrency, right? knows how hard it is sure. to do it. And the cool thing is that, and that's a little-known fact, is that there are two main components in the robotic studio. You have the CCR and the DSS. The CCR is the concurrency and coordination runtime. That's the component that really makes it easy to manage anything that's asynchronous. Okay. So it makes, you, it, makes it easy for you to write and to manage an asynchronous process. And it also allows you to avoid all sorts of things like manual threading, semaphores, and locking, and concurrency. Sounds like we could use that in a lot of software. You know what? And that's exactly where I was going with this, is that the CCR and the DSS, which is the Decentralized System Services, which allows you to, make, to work with services, and all these services have a state. And you can reuse services. They're failure-tolerant. You can restart them if you want. They're discoverable. And you can use them remotely. So essentially, we're talking about a service-oriented architecture here. Right. So you have concurrency and coordination in a service-oriented architecture. So, of course, you don't have to use this just with robotics. And in fact, so the, the DSS and the CCR were actually created before the Robotics Studio by two guys at Microsoft. One is Enric Nielsen. And the other one, I'm, I'm, I'm going to massacre his name, I know, it's George Krizantakopoulos. Okay. And Nielsen, by the way, was the co-author of the HTTP protocol. Hmm. And wow. he was wow. he was the Microsoft envoy for the SOAP spec. So on the SOAP committee, he was the guy representing Microsoft on that committee. Huh. And... Uh, and Krizantakopoulos was uh, on the Xbox team, and he was on the original Xbox team, making sure that everything fit together with all the internal bits and pieces. So he was essentially the, one of the key architects of the internal architecture of the uh, of the original Xbox. So this, uh, so the system was built before the robotics studio, and it worked so well. They said this is a perfect application for it. Well, it, because. Of course, robotics guys will tell you that concurrency and coordination are two things that they have to deal with on a daily basis. So that's why it was a good application for it. But when you, when you think of a service-oriented architecture that is inherently state-enabled and concurrent with services all over the place, that you can start, stop as much as you want, query them as much as you want without using a central repository, it, it really changes the way you architect applications. So it, it really 
throws the kibosh, you know, on, on a lot of principles that we know today in SOA or in modern architecture. Well, let me ask you this, Nick. What does the programming interface look like for this? Is it a component with a series of events, or how, how does it work? Okay, you work with Visual Studio, first of all. That's the good news. So you don't have to install something separate. I mean, you, well, you do have to download the Robotic Studio, which is at version 1.5 today, by the way. And um, you, we can provide a link, of course, on the website. And you download a Robotic Studio, you install this, it goes on top of uh, Visual Studio, either Express, Standard, Professional, or any of the team editions. And from there, you create a new robot application. Version 1.0, you had to create your Visual Studio project from a command line. Now, in 1.5, you have the ability to create it directly in Visual Studio. Okay. Once you have that in Visual Studio, what you end up with is you end up with a simple uh, a DSS application, so the, the decentralized software services. And what that gives you is the ability to manipulate a whole bunch of services. So think of a robotics application as nothing but services. So a motor is a service. A sensor is a service. The UI, for example, that would give you state information about your robot is also a service. So is this in the form of um, setting properties on objects or making method calls or handling events, all of those things? Exactly. And But the thing is, all of these services you write as if it was a single-threaded application, hmm. a single-user, single-threaded application, and it's the CCR, the coordination and the concurrency and coordination runtime, that actually gives you the ability, when it's hosted in the DSS, to actually manage all of these components concurrently as if they were running in a multi-threaded environment. It actually comes with its own thread pool. It does not use a thread pool from the CLR because it uses a more high-performance thread pool. And that's one of the reasons why this, the DSS and the CCR were shipped with the Robotic Studio. It's because it, it kind of needed a, a ship vehicle. It, it, it could not be integrated in .NET Framework 3.0. It was not big enough to stand on its own. Nick, I'm still trying to get my head around how you would write code here. We, are we talking about, like, a main loop with call-out points? Um, just give me an example of what... I mean, you don't have to read code, but what, what does it typically look like? Okay, well, first, you, you're going to have, essentially, what you do is your application itself is going to be uh, a DSS service. And then that DSS service is going to implement the base, the, the DSS service base uh, class, which comes with the, D, the Microsoft DSS. And then from there, your service is going to have a state, and it has a, an override in there that is the start. Whenever the service is started, you actually have declaration code that is provided for you, and this is where you insert other things in there. So this is a Windows service? You no, know, it's a DSS service, Okay. part of the Robotic Studio. It, okay. it can be a little confusing because it uses a lot of the same terms we're used to, okay. like a port, uh, like a, a service, but it's okay. a DSS service. So it's a, is, it, is it implemented as a class that implements a base class? Interfaces. Exactly. Yes. It's a class. And then that class, you can partner with other classes. And you have a main static class that's provided to you called an arbiter. And the arbiter is essentially there to help you coordinate everything because you will receive messages, for example, from the arbiter. But I'm, I'm trying to really avoid going too deep in the code here because it is not easy to grasp at first. That's why most of the uh, robotic studio documentation is mainly centered around samples. I mean, there is documentation, it's the work in progress, 1.5 is already better than 1.0, but it still has ways to go. The best way to start with this is to pick up the samples, play with it, 
and explore how it is and to start simple. Start with creating a simple service. And then once you've created your service, what you do is that it is loaded in a DSS host that's provided by the Robotics Studio. And that DSS host is running on your computer. Your service is loaded into this. And then you can even monitor that service using a web browser interface because the DSS host can communicate over HTTP. And and the service is a complete implementation that talks to a robot, not just one aspect of a robot, right? Well, your service, remember, is your application, but it will talk to other services. So you can have, after that, different services that will connect with the motors and the sensors of your robot. And this is where you can have a generic or a specific service for your robot if you want. For example, I could have a generic motor service or I could have a specific Lego Mindstorms motor service. Let me ask you this. I'm trying to figure out whether one service controls an entire robot or just a piece of a robot. You, you have both. You both. have services for each part of the robot. Like all, each, each motor will have its own service. Okay. Each sensor will have its own service. You can even aggregate those into another service if you want. For example, I if you see. have two wheels... You can aggregate these two wheels together into one motor, like, driving service. And then you can write other services that can control the granular services. Exactly. To orchestrate them. That orchestrate everything. Because, of course, some services will be sensor, therefore input, and you'll have other services that are motors and therefore output. That's pretty cool. Yeah, no, it is pretty cool because... it's uh, It really teaches you good object orientation, even service-oriented development. And it, it, that's why it's a little harder to grasp when you're really not familiar with these, these principles. And when you're used to, to writing an application, for example, it's going to be driven from a UI. And then it goes across layers like business and data. It's a very, co- very different kind of application where you, you have service orientation inside of a single app. And from there, your different services, for example, for the motor or the sensors, can be generic or specific, as I said. Yeah. If they're generic, then you're going to need something that's going to tell them how to attach them to a specific robot. And that's where it comes in the manifest. And the manifest is simply XML configuration. And you take that XML configuration and you, you attach it to a service. And then automatically, you now have a motor. And with the proper manifest, that motor can communicate with a Lego robot or with an iRobot uh, vacuum cleaner or with uh, any uh, an industrial robot if you want. So the manifest just has the data the, the data that's uh, required to talk to a specific device. Exactly, exactly. It, it has the specific data. And if you want, for example, this way you could create a robot. And let's say that you, you want to build something that's going to require a very expensive robot, but you don't have access to that robot right now. So you might, if you want, recreate... Using Lego Mindstorms, which is a flexible, very cheap, and easy-to-use robot creation kit, you could recreate a smaller miniature version of the bigger robot using Mindstorms, create an application with generic services that will then use this Lego Mindstorms to play with it and test it and test the motion. And then later, whenever you, you want to attach to the real robot, then you would simply change the manifest files to use the configuration that's specific to that industrial robot. I see. There are other variants. It's a very, very flexible toolkit. There are, for example, from the development point of view, if you, don't, if you don't want to start with code, there's also a visual programming language. Oh, neat. So that's a completely different, like, new application. It's a separate executable that comes to Robotics Studio. You install it, and it's all drag and drop. 
So you drag and drop your services. You can either drop specific services. For example, it has a whole list of supported robots in there like iRobot and Lego and a whole bunch of others. There's over 30 partners that have already partnered with Microsoft to make sure they're supported in there. And you can also just drop generic services and then attach manifest files. And huh. you you build your whole UI. And this is something that people would have to go to the website to actually see how it is. Or maybe it warrants a, a good uh, DNR TV episode. Um, you can actually build kind of like Visio in a way. You have all your boxes. You connect arrows between them. And then you attach events and parameters. And this is how you create your robotics application. That's pretty and cool. With ver- and then you can run it directly from there. You click run, and then it runs directly in that environment. So it sounds like you could you could use that, and when you when you want to do something specific, you'd write a service and plug that in, and would that show up in like a toolbar in the visual uh, right. tool? Right, you can you can add your own services to that. Whenever you create a service, you can add your own manifest files if you want. Huh. And but the the thing is, the main orchestrator is the visual language that you're using to create it. Yeah, I'm I'm still fighting with things like prioritizing, deciding you're headed for a flight of stairs, you're going to fall down. Or if I don't go back and get recharged now, I'm not going to make it. Like that sort of prioritization seems like a challenging part of this equation. Well, that's the part where, you know, you're a developer, so you have to write code. But at least asking, the robot telling you there's a hole in front of me is something that's going to be easy. Or you telling the robot, please back up, is something that's going to be easy. But the code where you're going to analyze the, oh, there's a hole and we should back up, that part is you. And I got to see, this is where the, the visual inspection stuff comes in. I think a big part of a robot interacting with its environment, if it's moving, right? If it's not moving, it doesn't have to worry about it so much. But if it's moving around, trying to identify things and avoid things, and, you know, that's where a, a really particular uh, tool for analyzing visual information is very useful. Well, and I noticed on the uh, Robotic Studio Development Center site, there are samples for vision tracking. So obviously people have done some work in that area, although you, you, you throw in an interesting problem, Carl, which is everything looks like it's moving when you're moving. Right. Right. But that's why you don't rely necessarily on the vision when you, when you deal with a robot. You're going to deal with something like bumpers, for example, or you can have a contact on the floor. And whenever you lose that contact, it means that you just have a hole in front of you. And that's why concurrency is very important, because let's say you have tons of sensors and you have massive information coming to your application on your laptop or on a computer driving the robot. And then suddenly you've got all this input is coming and you've got this big loop that's running in a single threaded application and you're still trying to digest information and sending input based on old sensor data. And now new sensor data comes in because you couldn't process it fast enough that says there is a hole. If you don't react fast enough, you're going to fall in that hole. So that's why single-threaded applications that don't deal with concurrency are not good for robotics because you need to be able to send in information massively fast. And that's why, for example, the even if you build a multi-threaded application with a CLR, it's not always going to be good enough because the thread pool in a CLR, the way it works is that if you have a lot of events and a lot of threads in your thread pool, it's not going to, and you want to introduce a new thread with a higher priority in there, it's still not going to be able to process that thread until all of the threads at least have been taken out of the thread pool to look at them. Whereas the... The, the, the CCR here has its own thread pool that is more of a high-performance thread pool where you could have, for example, 
two dispatcher queues. You can have one dispatcher queue for regular events and another dispatcher queue for high-priority events. Hey, wouldn't it be nice if you could build a production website from scratch in just a few hours? Well, listen while I tell you about Telerik Sitefinity, a flexible development platform for construction and management of websites, community portals, intranets, and why not your personal web space? Since its customizable architecture is built entirely on the ASP.NET 2.0 framework, .NET developers can profit from various well-known goodies like master pages, membership services, the data provider model, and themes. And it's really flexible. You get this robust core, and you can customize the application your way. Anything that's not available out of the box can just be plugged in from a complex application like a CRM system to just a small widget that displays the local weather. If you're less inclined to fiddle with code, have no fear. Sitefinity 3.0 offers a full set of features straight out of the box. Workflow, content versioning and reuse, and support for multilingual sites. Thanks to the rich set of pluggable modules and components like news, blogs, polls, lists, and all sorts of things, you can jumpstart your website projects. Last but not least, Sitefinity is real eye candy. The unique Web 2.0 administrative interface helps you and the non-technical content contributors, very important, be more productive. So go to www.sitefinity.com to check out the online demo and download a trial. Nick, I got to ask you if you saw that uh, show on the Discovery Channel about the DARPA's autonomous vehicle race. Yeah, I did not see it, but I read about it. Yeah, when they, they, it started in 2004, if I remember correctly, where um, initially these robots that have to, these driving robots, essentially cars, have to go through wild terrain and. Yeah, in the Mojave Desert, it's a 132 mile race through the Mojave Desert, and the vehicles had to be completely autonomous. That means yep. they had to. They had, they couldn't be controlled remotely. They had to figure out where they were going. Um, there's a shrinkster, uh, shrinkster.com slash QR8 brings you to a news article about it. And, uh, if you can see it on Discovery, uh, uh, Discovery HD, even it was in a high def. It was a great show. Yeah, um, and, and the and first year they ran it, it was pretty much a disaster. I think the best vehicle right. did seven miles. Stanley the, was the name of the vehicle that f- that finished. And and it, what's interesting about it is there were the 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 two top vehicles that won. The the uh, the the two. Let me just say this again. What's interesting about it was the vehicle that won took a different approach to autonomy than other guys. One of the other challengers plugged in GPS points in fine detail. They got at four in the morning, they actually got the map and they started, you know, increasing the resolution of the GPS points. They wanted to map out exactly where this thing should go by GPS. But the one that won took a different take. He, he improved the vision and the analysis capabilities of the car. And by doing that, made it think its way to the finish line in a way that the other guys were going more on GPS. Yeah, which is good, because this way it shows how the robot was more autonomous. Exactly. Just to show how fast the field of robotics is going these days, in 2004, for that challenge, the even though it's a 142-mile course, 
the the top competitors only managed to to, to go like I think over like seven miles That's before right. breaking down. Whereas in two thousand five, five of them actually finished the race. Yeah, and completed the whole distance, and the top one was driving at almost twenty miles an hour. Yep, it's awesome. So th- this is a massive improvement when you think of it. And uh, I- I'm not aware of the latest results, in, like since then in 2006 or seven, or if it's even happened this year yet. But definitely, it's uh, it shows that there's a lot of interest in robotics. There's a lot of things you can do with this, and there's. It's like software. At the very beginning, people were looking at these desktop computers and wonder, like, why on earth would we need one on every desk and in every home? Yeah, you know what we're missing is the breakthrough at that mo- at that point was VisiCalc and ultimately Lotus One Two Three. The killer That's app what, that we're missing the killer app for robots because it ain't vacuuming. Yeah, yeah. it ain't. <laughs> well, I gotta tell you, I, I love my little iRobot. I never have to vacuum my place anymore. It's great. It, it, it's simple. It's a Spot the simple. unmarried guy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I, dude, my girlfriend has one too. But when I first ordered that thing, I, sh- I, I emailed her the, the link on the internet. She replies to me like, does that even work? Because she's not a geek. And she's, she, she is so doubtful that I had just like wasted my money on that thing. And when I, fi- <laughs> when I finally got the thing and got it charged up and, and started that thing in the apartment... She was running around behind that thing uh, all over the place. She was like, this is so cool. This is so cool. And sure enough, um, the next time around that I got the same deal online, she bought one, and she even even bought one for her parents. This sounds like it's a really good idea for kids who are getting into programming to give them something a little more exciting to, to work towards than, you know, than a whatever kind of business application, you know. That, that's why Microsoft is also working on these initiatives like XNA for game development with .NET and Robotics Studio for robotics with .NET. It's because, you know, we are in a crisis. There's fewer and fewer kids going to computer science. And um, it's true that it's not with web service security and, and distributed, you know, applications running uh, across, you know, the web that we're going to excite them. Yeah. What we need is cool applications that they can see how this can impact their lives or the lives of others. So video games is one way, and robotics is another. I'm big on the autonomous robot. So I'm looking at, like, white box robotics just has a PC on board. Let the thing be self-contained. What's white box robotics? So white box robotics is a company that makes robotic products. They have a thing called PC Bot, and it uh, it's supported by Robotic Studio, but it's just a PC on, the mach- uh, on board, because... Any robot I got wandering around my house has got to be big enough I can fit a PC into it. Yep. And uh, White Box Robotics PC Bot can be found at shrinkster.com slash QRA. And, and the thing, Richard, also is whenever you talk about uh, a white box or any kind of autonomous robot, another thing also that people have been asking me about is, well, let's say that you know you have a robot, but you need to have this computer driving the robot using wireless, something like that. And the cool thing is that with the new version of, uh, of um, Robotics Studio 1.5, Microsoft actually now supports Windows Mobile and Windows CE. So right. the CCR, the runtime, actually now can run with the compact framework on Windows Mobile and Windows CE. So wow. it becomes a lot easier to then use any phone device or any Windows CE device, and that's now your brain. That just opens up a room for a lot more horsepower other than going all out with this sort of PC-based solution, which admittedly, when you're talking about that, that PC bot, you're talking $5,000. Like, oh, this really? is no longer a toy. That's right. a lot of money. 
Whereas now what I can do is, let's say I want to use something as simple as a 250 bucks Lego Mindstorm NXT, and I need a computer to drive this because, as I said, the little 256 k of RAM is not going to be enough. Microsoft actually has a piece of software that they wrote using the visual Lego language that actually runs on the brick just to communicate with the DSS and the CCR on your computer. And from your computer, you control the robot. But if you want the robot to be autonomous completely, then what you could do is just put a holder on your robot to fit a phone. And then have the phone use Bluetooth to communicate with the main brick, what we call the, the NXT brick, which kind of looks like a Lego iPod. And it allows you to essentially have the software, the, the, your orchestrator software, written with a Microsoft Robotics Studio, running on the Windows mobile phone. And the phone, since it lives directly, there's a socket in your robot, you have pretty much an autonomous robot where the brain is a Windows mobile device. Huh. Yeah, I guess it's just two different ways to go about this. The, the staying with less expensive, lighter weight, lower power parts to build smaller robots. But when you think about anything that's going to do something substantial around the house, and I'm still trying to figure out what that is, you've got space, quite a bit of room. You can build, you can go with less expensive, larger parts. Yeah, I would think the business case would, would still be, uh, limited to the industrial application. Don't you, Richard? I mean, manufacturing. Yeah, manufacturing. Well, so far, robots, the, the, the three main scenarios are what we call the 3Ds. It's either because it's dull, it's dirty, or it's dangerous. That's typically where we use robots. So vacuuming my floor is very dull, so a robot does it for me. Disarming bombs is actually dangerous, so a robot can do it. Of course, sometimes it's not necessarily an autonomous robot. It's more like a remote control robot where somebody else you just have cameras and actuators and it can actually control everything like a remote control robot. Well, is that, that's a good, that's a good point. Is there anything for remote control in this, uh, studio? Uh, not per se, no. You would have to build your own. But again, it's the same thing. It's actually easier when you think of it because now if you have an application, your application, remember, is the orchestrator. It receives input and sends command information to the motor. Right. Now, instead of writing code that analyzes the input, and then decides on a course of action to give an output to the motors. Instead, what you can just do is take that input, find a way to represent it to your user using a UI service, yep. and then provide your user with a way to actually you know, simply send commands based on what they see. So you use your own brain instead of coding it. And when it comes to that, all the tools are in Robotics Studio. Even the, the cool thing is there's actually a, a nice sample both in code, in code form and also using the visual language on how you can hook up an Xbox controller to a robot using the Robotics Studio. Interesting. I so bet you've you, done that, haven't you? Well, of course. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't have a shortage of Xbox controllers at home. So because the Xbox 360 controller is an X-input controller, which has a standard managed code interface, and therefore, it's very easy to just connect it as it. There's even a service that's already built for it because your input becomes a service. And whenever you drag and drop in a visual programming language, there's even an X input service where you just drag and drop in there, you connect it with a motor, and then bam, right away with a button, you push it, and then that activates that motor. So, Nick, I'm, I got to ask you, I mean, you're very enthusiastic about it. Is there any downside? Is there anything they could have done better? Is there any killer feature that's not there that you want to see? Okay, um... It's it's a it's a one one oh one point five product. Okay. So of course that comes with you know what that implies. 
it's not all there in terms of it's not necessarily that it doesn't um, do anything. It's that you have to think of it as it's a framework, it's a library, and you have to write a lot of code for it. So it can be a little daunting for someone jumping into this in the first place. However, Microsoft has already done a very good move because the visual programming language before uh, only allowed you to visually create an application and then run it. Yeah. But if you wanted to go deeper into it, you couldn't do anything about it because there was no way to generate code from the language. But okay. now in 1.5, the visual programming language will actually spit out a VB or C-sharp project, and hmm. then you can take that and then tweak it to your liking. So if you want to do quick prototyping, use a visual programming language, and then once you hit the limitations there or you really want more like fine-tuned uh, control over your app, your robot, then you can automatically continue with the code project. Is that what it's called, Visual Programming Language, VPL? It's VPL, exactly. Yeah. It's not it's not round-trip engineering, though. So you're not going to get, if you change the code, it's not going to go change the language. It's a one, one-step export process. So uh, it sounds to me like then in the future, you're going to see more libraries come out of... of uh, a probably of services that can be plugged in that do more sophisticated things, wouldn't you think? Well, of course. Like, for example, you can have, I mean, you can pick up any uh, game uh, AI book, like an uh, artificial intelligence book, and then from there you can find a lot of algorithms, for example, like pathfinding. You can, there are standard algorithms for this. So you can already apply a lot of AI principles in your code. It's not really necessarily related to robotics. Whether you're going to apply this to a virtual character on screen or to an actual robot, in the end, it's the same code. Sure, and I suppose also just the fact that you're in a .NET language and you get a chunk of data. Now, there's there's obviously tools out there to do analysis on that data. What what format does this raw data come in? Like visual data? Is there are there standards for that? No, there's no there's no data that comes in visually. Essentially, it's Microsoft uses two protocols for this. It uses HTTP and DSSP. And DSSP is the is the DSS protocol. And Microsoft is also ha- trying to help people to adopt this because they've actually released DSSP as an open standard. So you get metrics, but not data. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, but you have to you actually have to, to process it afterwards. Because if, for, for example, data could be as simple as you have a bumper in front of your robot right. and it's set to false. And whenever you hit something, it sends you true, period. That's it. Or it can be an integer it's going to return to you. So data is nothing more than variables, but instead of having these variables set by a user in interface or coming back from a database, now the data is coming from a service. Hmm. But in the end, you're still dealing with the same types of .NET data types. So as a developer, you should know how to deal with this. How extensible is this? I mean, if we have a robot that... Uh, wants to send, I don't know, temperature or directions or some, something that's not in the stack, you know? It's, it, that's the thing. It's not a question of stack. It's a question of the service. You simply have to create your own service for it. So there's already tons of robots I that see. are already supported that have their own services. If you have a, a temperature sensor, any kind of other input that you want to use or output that doesn't exist in there, you simply write the service for it, either a generic service with a manifest file or a specific service where the code specifically talks to this. I see. So, so I can therefore see in the future, like just to take my vision metaphor to the nth, I could see a company that makes robot eyes that has a service on either side that also does some analysis for you. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. You can have libraries like this 
And on top of that, the cool thing is that let's say earlier I was talking about uh, you have um, a robot that you can't have in your office because it's an industrial robot or it needs to work in a specific environment. You can't really duplicate in your office. So even a, a kit like a, ro a Lego Mindstorms would not help. You also have a nice uh, visual a, a simulation environment that comes with this. Microsoft has licensed technology from uh, AGEA, the physics environment from AGEA, which is a completely physics-driven 3D environment with shadows, collision detection, uh, you can affect like the gravities, uh, the gravity laws in there. For example, hmm. uh, one demo that I show is where yeah, I can bump a ball and I turn off gravity, I bump a ball and the ball just like, like floating off in the air. And then the moment I just go back and I turn gravity back on, I'm, you see the, the ball fall automatically. Hmm. So what you can do is you can recreate an environment either by loading uh, items in there or by loading manifest files or by loading uh, code itself. And instead of using a physical robot, you can have your application run inside of that simulation environment. And therefore, you can see your simulated robot, which could be a full 3D model or something as simple as a cube that represents your robot. And you can then see it operating in an environment that you cannot easily recreate in a real world. And that all comes with it as well. Does Microsoft have any plans to um, hold contests for kids? I mean, there's the Imagine Cup, and I know they do a lot of robotics stuff there, but is there anything specific to robotics, like a, a challenge or an annual contest that uh, somebody holds in this regard? They, they already have some uh, some competition packages they've already done. For example, at MEDC, there was uh, one such competition called... And ME what's MEDC? MEDC, it was co-located with Mix in Vegas. It's the Mobile and Embedded Developers Conference. Ah, cool. And um, I, I'm a speaker there, so I go there. And then last year, there was a, a SumoBot competition with these little uh, parallax robots that were running the micro framework, whereas this year, it was using the, the iRobot uh, Create model, which looks like the vacuum cleaner, but actually doesn't have any vacuum cleaner in there. It's the same shape, but it's got <laughs> a, a top. It's really a robot for development, and they yeah. had little cameras on it, and it was a full kit that is pretty expensive. It's a few hundred bucks. And people that wanted to participate in this, it's a sumo bot competition. So you have a sumo arena. You put both robots in there. They're fully autonomous. You like turn a battle them on, bot thing, right? And yeah, they just fight it out. They have to push the other robot out outside of the sumo arena. I see. So since they didn't have a lot of these robots, initially the way that people did it is if they wanted to participate in the contest, they could simply download the sumo bot simulation library and all the environment from Microsoft that gives you a 3D version of the iRobot Create with the camera and the, the Sumo Arena and all the base code to actually run it. And all they had to do was to write the Robotic Studio application that would be the, the brains that would analyze the input and provide the output. That would essentially be the strategy of the robot on whether it would be more aggressive, more defensive. And then they would go to um, committee people that would run their robot inside of a simulation environment, and if they essentially worked, they would pit them against the application from someone else. So now you have two robots battling it out in a simulated environment, and they would go through a few rounds like this, and then the, the finale for the, 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 the grand finale was at the attendee party at Tau, and now they had the actual physical robots cool. fighting in a sumo arena that had the exact same specs as a simulation environment. 
But now you actually had an audience of people around it cheering on the three arenas where the robots were competing and where you see robots like being toppled over and falling out of the arena. So, Nick, do you have any idea what's coming in the next version? Um, right now, I'll be honest with you, I have not really seen a lot of the, um, the, the new features that are coming. I know they're still working on more documentation and more samples. That's the best way to learn with this. Okay. The documentation is it, it's good in the sense that it's very... Uh, thorough and deep, but it's not, I would say, accessible. It, okay. it can be a little daunting to jump into this as first. Also, as I said, the whole uh, service orientation inside of an app for a robot and everything, and the DSS and the CCR are also not very easy pieces to understand at first. Yeah. So the best way is to jump in with the, the samples that are provided. There's a lots of samples. There's also a lot of people that blog about it, and you can find other samples uh, on their blogs as well. Um, getting started with a visual programming language is also a good way to get started because you don't have to deal with too much code. You simply focus more on the logic of how an application is structured rather than the implementation part on how the syntax, how you code it. Okay. But beyond that, Microsoft has not publicly announced their plans for the, the, the next release. The 1.5 just came out. It, it, it's very, very new, like fresh uh, off the assembly line. Great. Well, Nick, any final words before we wrap it up here? Well, I would, I would say that robotics is something that's fun. It's something that, yeah, as you said, you can get kids into it. It's not just for kids. It's also for adults as well. I have my own Lego Mindstorms uh, kit. I enjoy it. It's fun. You can play with it. You learn a lot. Uh, learning the robotics studio also means that you're going to learn the CCR and the DSS. And if you're into any kind of distributed architecture or service orientation, these pieces on their own, are actually very valuable and can change the way you're going to architect distributed systems hmm. that deal with you know high volume, high concurrency, and uh, real-time data. Interesting. So Robotics Studio is not just about robotics. There's a lot of good tools in there that can improve any IT developer. So I highly recommend it. Anyone play with it. And it's going to be a good break anyways from playing with ASP.NET and, and, and Silverlight and, and all these things. I mean, just True. go play with something that actually moves. Have for some fun. Deal. <laughs> yeah, have some fun. There's something really cool about writing a piece of code, and then when you hit run, you see that little gizmo that starts running on your floor. It's cool. it, it's a lot of fun. I discovered this in 98 when I was playing with robots in the movie industry and everything, and I had a lot of fun with it then. I wish I had the robotic studio then. It would, it would have made my job a lot, lot simpler. So definitely, I would say just go play with it, have fun. It's one of these uh, great Microsoft tools that you can just enjoy, and for once... Uh, you can see your .NET skills can easily be reused for uh, more than web services or security stuff. And, and lastly, also, if you're interested in seeing this in action, not only can you play with it, but I will also be uh, presenting a session on robotics with Windows Mobile at the upcoming Mobile Connections in Vegas. So Great. come along. I'll bring my Lego Mindstorms and my Windows Mobile devices, and uh, we'll have some fun with it. That's so at devconnections.com. Yeah, devconnections.com. I'll see you there. Nicholas Landry, thank you very much for spending this hour with us. And uh, we'll see you, dear listener, next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Quap Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. 
online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a 